in um, Buddhism, they like to uh, enumerate things. So they have four of this and eight of that and 10 of that. And um, one of the things that they enumerate is um, called four pairs of mundane concerns. Well, wait till you hear the four. So they're pretty inclusive. <laughs> okay, so the four pairs of mundane concern. Um, gain and loss. Pleasure and pain. Fame and infamy. Praise and blame. Okay? Gain and loss. Pleasure and pain fame and infamy, praise and blame. So we can ponder how much of our life energy is expended in pursuit of mundane concerns. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we don't, it's wrong to enjoy pleasure when it comes. Um, or, or fame, or um, you know, whatever whatever the life experience is, the the um, expenditure of energy comes in with um, trying to obtain some sort of lasting satisfaction from from the gain of something, from the pleasure of something, from achieving something, from gaining fame. Right? So that, that movement, it's not, it's not the actual experience, it's, it's uh, what the desire for that experience. Let's just take uh, pleasure, pursuit of pleasure, right? So, I mean, it can be big things, you know, the pleasure of I don't know, achieving a lifelong goal, the, p- the pleasure of um, uh, succeeding, pleasure of winning, pleasure of uh, all, of, all of that. So again, there's no, no problem with that sense. There's no problem with enjoying that when it arrives. Um, but one of the things that it can teach us in the long run is that, um, well, several things. Um, one is if we're pursuing it as if, you know, somehow if I gain that, there'll, there'll be a greater sense of well-being, happiness than exists now. So that's my motivation for pursuing it, right? Um, you know, I, I seek my own well-being, my own sense of comfort, pleasure, whatever, um, and here's how I'm going to go about getting it by going down this road, expending energy, and the payoff is somewhere down there in the future. Well, there's two possibilities, right? Either you achieve what you were going after, or you don't, right? If you don't, okay, you get uh, bummed out, frustrated, you know, opportunity to you know, blame life or other people or God or somebody. Um, so that's 
that doesn't lead to happiness. But the other more difficult thing to see sometimes is that even when we succeed in getting what we want, um, feels really good for a while, right? So we can acknowledge that. But it has a characteristic of not lasting, right? Feels really good, then it feels pretty good, then it feels fairly ordinary, and then it's, what else? You know, in a sense it's not all that much different from, I don't know, eating ice cream after dinner. The first bite, really good, right? Next couple of bites, yeah, it's still good. At some point, subject to the law of diminishing returns. So it's the same thing. I mean, we buy a new car. It feels great. Look out in the driveway. Yep, still there. It still looks good. And then after some time, a few weeks, a month, you know, it just becomes what I, what I drive. So if, if it was in the possibility of the object to make us happy, as long as we had that object, we would be happy. As long as we had that car and it still ran, we should still be happy. If our, if our happiness was staked on getting that, right? So that's as if the object had the power to give us the satisfaction. But I'd suggest it's not in the object at all. It's like when we finally get the object of our desire for a short time, you know, maybe, I don't know, a few minutes or a few months, whatever, maybe even a few years. Um, that sense of wanting is satisfied. Right? So we don't want anything else. Another way of saying that is we're okay with as things are, right? So we sort of, uh, for a short time, that sense of wanting is satisfied and um, we can, we're totally happy to let things be as they are because we like the way they are, right? But it's the absence of wanting that creates that sense of um, joy and It's not the object itself. Um, Back in the, um, you know, if you've ever looked at the old, you know, like 100-year-old Sears and Roebuck catalogs, you know, they'd have, I mean, it's what many people bought a lot of things for, mail order, big catalog, and, um, you know, they'd have the object and, um, and then they'd have very technical description of what it was, you know, what it could do, how many horsepower, whatever, you know, very, very detailed. And you can buy it, you know, look at the facts and you could buy it or, or not buy it. Well, someone, um, there was an American, I, I can't remember his name, but there was an American somewhere back in, I think, the 1920s who realized that um, there's a much, much more effective way of selling things and that is to get people involved psychologically, right? It's not how many, you know, how long it'll last or what the warranty is. It's, you know, how you'll feel when you have it, you know? 
I mean, think, think of more recent ads. You know, if you smoke the cigarette, you know, you'll be a virile man out on the prairies, right? You know, if you drink this beer, buy this car, and you'll be the object of adoration. Doesn't have anything to do with horsepower anymore. It's like, here's, here's what you could feel. Um, I remember in, in high school, we could uh, drive our uh, cars to high school if, if you, well, if you had a driver's license and um, you weren't caught speeding, um, as some of us were. So um, you could drive your car to high school, um, and if you had a car, you could. Um, and there was, I, I remember there was one kid in school that was like not unmemorable from any in any sort of way we had known him for years. And, um, and then he got a Corvette, <laughs> you know, a red Corvette. And in the 1960s, a Corvette was like, I don't know, like, you know, high-end BMW is today. Um, and he would drive that to school. And um, that, that summer I worked in the gas station. He would come by, put a dollar's worth of gas in it, just so he could drive around for the afternoon and be seen in this car, right? So it was like, here's, here's someone who's, as far as I could tell, his entire identity was in being the owner and driver and totally merged with this car, right? So it sounds humorous, right? You know, you know, except, you know, when we think of the extent to which we are identified with, I don't know, our appearance, our hairstyle, our clothes, our, where we live, you know, our profession, our same, same thing. You know, more sophisticated identification. <laughs> Our spiritual abilities. All ways that we can identify ourselves. So to come back to the seeking pleasure, this uh, idea of um, I have something that I believe will make me happy and, um, and it's out there, it's not here, it's there and I'm willing to work towards that, and I know once I get there, uh, there'll be a payoff in the future. And I'll feel like, I'll feel good, right? So when we really look at it, it it's, it's really not so much the object of attainment, it's really how I'll feel when I get there. Is that true? So it begins to raise the question, well, what's preventing me from feeling like that now? And I'd suggest one of the things that's preventing us from having that sense of well-being in this moment is the belief that somehow something's lacking here that will be found there, right? So we've denied what's present in earnest hopes of finding it 
there and then rather than here and now. So there's a couple characteristics. Let's say we spent, I don't know, five, ten years pursuing some goal and, and we achieve it, right? We achieve some level of, I don't know, success, fame, um, you know, we get the partner of our dreams, we get the job of our dreams, we live in the house of our dreams, whatever, you know, we achieve our goal. And um, so we can find out a few things when that happens is, uh, one, that the, that the enjoyment of it over time tends to fade. You know, it's not permanent. We haven't, we haven't discovered the permanent source of bliss, happiness, contentment. Right. So what do we do? What do most people do? More, right? Maybe it's, maybe this house, this house was nice, right? But I can imagine I'd really be happy with the, like the beach house. I mean, that, then I'd be happy. <laughs> right? There was an ad on, I don't know, some years ago. Um, they enlisted, you know, some team player from the team that just won the Super Bowl and, and uh, you know, the ad was, well, what are you going to do next? And, well, I'm going to Disneyland. You know, as it, I mean, as if the, that long time accomplishment was, was good, but, you know, it needs to be, what's the next thing? the next stimulus, the next goalpost, the next hope for something in the future that'll fulfill me, hopefully permanently. Right. I once uh, knew someone that was actually at, um, uh, stayed at the, forget the name of the house, up in upper New York State with uh, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass, before he was called Ram Dass. And um, he, he told me about, um, I don't know, he spent several weeks up there, but he told me about um, uh, taking LSD every day for like seven days, just nonstop. And um, I was, but it was like, you know, hoping to attain some permanent high state, right? Because we've all had the, the experience of, you know, some, some, pleasure, some um, activity, you know, there's the, the high state, feels good, and then there's the, the letdown afterwards, the hangover, you know. So here, here was some, some hope, maybe it'll be permanent, you know, I'll just get myself so high I'll never come down. So how is that different from what we dream enlightenment will be. Enlightenment isn't a high state. 
It isn't, it's that which is present for whatever state happens to arise. Maybe it's a high state, maybe it's not. It's not a state. All states come and go. All states are impermanent. Even bliss, all states, bliss, disappointment, sadness, grief, joy, all, all of that, all of that is an influx, right? There is, when we understand that, then there is a sense of contentment. You know, just an, uh, a gentle contentment that remains. It remains because we're not looking for something better, something better in the future. Eckhart Tolle talked about his um, awakening one time, and he said, at first it was, you know, just in, in immensely blissful, right? Just blown away, bliss. And he said, but it was only that in comparison of how I felt before. After, after a while, I realized that it was... Um, It, it settled into contentment, you know, which, which doesn't sound as good in the advertising, right? The advertising for enlightenment. But um, it's very nice, you know, just being content with ourselves, content with um, how life is unfolding at any moment, sense of peace there. sense of fearlessness there. It's not, it's not mind-blowing, incapacitating bliss, right? It allows us to, to live, live life, um, you know, from a place of being content with what, whatever arises in it. We're not parking our um, well-being out in the future somewhere. You know, every time we do that, we say, well, I'll be happy when, if this happens. I'll be happy when I get enlightened, you know. I mean, the first thing that we do when we say that is we deny the presence now. You know, we, we deny that what, whatever, whatever that is, that awakening, we deny it here, now, and believe that it will happen there then somehow. Right. The only place it can ever happen <laughs> is here now. The only place that anything ever happens is here now. It's always now. You know, we have this sense of, you know, movement of time, you know, past, present, future. But any, any sense of that only happens in the present moment. You know, we can think of, oh, that happened last week, or this might happen tomorrow. But the only time we ever have those thoughts is in the present moment. 
you know, for all the effort that spiritual people trying to stay in the present moment. Has anybody ever managed to escape in the present moment? You know, it's, it's, always, it's always the present moment. So another way to look at it, when we were talking yesterday about, um, you know, all these perceptions just sort of appearing, flickering on the screen of awareness and the awareness being sort of the stable ground of being, um, sort of turns the table of what's, what's you know, solid and what's not. Um, so from that perspective, the sort of the solidity of awareness, and then you have this flickering of events on that screen. Where, where exactly is time? You know, the changing, right? Pattern always changing, events always changing. I remember this at this moment. Think of that, all that arising. Where's time in all of that? Just, it's movement. Movement compared to something that's not moving, which is the awareness, just that sense of being, and then this movement, this unfolding of life, this impermanence ever-changing, ever-appearing, ever-disappearing, arising, falling away. That's, that's all happening. And then we interpret you know, we impose this concept of time on top of it. From which perspective, right? You know, from the, expect, the, the, the perspective of appearances, yes, sure, that happened before this happened. But from the perspective of awareness, um, the awareness itself Nothing is happening, <laughs> but it's aware of things unfolding. So this this movement to um, seek some outcome that will give us a certain feeling sometime in the future. Um, it, it's, again, it's not that uh, those moments won't be pleasurable, you know. If you did something, you know, worthy of uh, someone's respect and they pat you on the back, it feels good, right? We don't have to deny that. It feels good. But to seek that is a whole different story, right? You know, my happiness is dependent on whether they pat me on the back or not. That's, that's a whole different thing. That, that we've given away the keys to our happiness to somebody else. They, they, they hold the keys and we're, we're the, well, we're in the jail, right? They've got the keys. <laughs> so we're dependent on, on their behavior, which is unpredictable. We know that. So we can see even if we achieve this like long-term ambition, this long-term goal, um, that um, for one thing, it doesn't last. And um, 
it's never ultimately fulfilling, right? It always leaves us wanting more. And how we usually satisfy that want is to look for the next thing to fulfill us. Bigger, better. I mean, it, it can work, you know, just to eat on a, you know, sort of, let's say a boring evening at home, you know. You know, it's first the dinner and then the, the TV show and then and a snack and then a, you know. It's always like, the next, what, what can help me feel okay, you know, for the next 10 years, the next three minutes, you know, there's an advertisement on, uh, you know, YouTube, and I'm going to run to the kitchen and get something to eat. So, that, you know, it's like to fill, you know, not to allow that moment to be as it is, not, not willing to allow ourselves to be bored. Anybody ever felt that? Like a reluctance to be bored? Yeah, that was for me, it's a big one for quite a few years. And you try to fill that space and nothing ever quite does it. You know, short term and then the next, next stimulus. Get me, get me through the night. But it, it's really when we allow that state to be as it is that, it, that it's, its threatening nature subsides. But we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to actually like face boredom or face fear or face regret or face whatever, whatever's grabbing us. And it's the, the willingness to face that um, actually takes the energy out of it. So again, we don't have to fix it. We don't have to, you know, make it go away. We, don't, we, we can't try real hard not to think about it. None of that works. We've all tried those things, right? It'd be great if it worked, huh? <laughs> I'll just make it go away. But the is seeing that really clearly, this sense of um, some sort of payoff in the future, um, is a denial of what's present. And if we do achieve that or gain that. Uh, to really see um, relatively short-lived nature of it. You know, it can feel good, but not ultimately satisfying. And the, I mean, the, the, the only thing that is ultimately satisfying is the discovery of what we already are. When, when, we, when it's recognized, it feels complete, you know. We can still do things. It doesn't prevent us in any way from doing things, but it has this sense of completeness. You know, we may still do things, but we're no longer doing it to feel happy in the future, right? We're doing it out of the joy of it, right? 
You know, we're, when we're doing some activity to gain some payoff from it in the future, it has a different feel than we're doing it just because we love doing it. Right? Doing something because we think we ought to do it. Someone expects us to do it. Someone demands that we do it has a different feel than we're just doing it out of the sheer joy of doing it. Right? Thich Nhat Hanh talks about two ways of doing the dishes. Right? One way is I'm doing these dishes to get them done. Right? The other way is just doing the dishes. They feel, they feel different. that sense of uh, doing things, something for the sheer joy of it just brings us back into this moment. It's, not, it's no longer future-oriented. It's not, no longer goal-oriented. You know, we've talked um, in the last few months sort of the difference between sort of having a goal and then having an intention. Um, you know, goal is very specific out in the future somewhere. Intention is more like sort of setting a, setting a course. Not quite knowing where that will lead, but, um, you know, sort of a more open-ended movement. You know, so there's, there's a difference between uh, saying to ourselves, um, I am willing to explore whatever I need to explore to find my deepest nature. So that, that would be like an intention, right? Because you don't know where that's going to go. Just like an, an announcement of availability to life, right? That's good to do, by the way. It's good to do it out loud, you know. Like a significant spot somewhere. You know, it doesn't have to be at the Grand Canyon or the ocean in front of me. It could be to a tree or a rock or anything. But something significant and announce your intention. That, that actually has power. Actually a form of prayer, right? It's not the same kind of prayer as I want, you know, it's more like I am willing, I'm ready, I'm available. I can sort of imagine this, I want prayers are over in this inbox. (laughs) Much smaller inbox over here. We can, it's important just to see that whole movement. Um, and it can be in little things, it can be in big things. It can be just in an evening, seeing this movement of, of more, wanting more and more. The next text is gonna, you know, sort of fulfill me. You know, 
the next dessert, the next TV show, the next conversation, the next. You know, all of those things can be pleasant. There's no problem with any of that. It's just, it's the expectation that there's a payoff there that's somehow better than whatever it is um, possible to experience in this moment as it is. So everything else is sort of a postponement. Um, And any any belief about that is sufficient to postpone it. Um, Like any belief that we might have about awakening, like, um, you know, I've sort of got, I have to clean up my act first. Obviously, like this, you know, I can't be worthy, right? So, so we've just postponed something. We, we have no basis for believing that, right? Other than what we may have read or somebody told us, but you know, to our own knowledge, do we know that's true? You know, if we also hear that, you know, um, what you're looking for is what is looking. You know, if that's true, where, where's the self-improvement required? Where's, where's the merit required? You know who said that, by the way? I was surprised to find out just recently. What you're looking for is what is looking other people have used the phrase since, but um, Saint Francis of Assisi. So if that's true, if if what we're looking for is already present, um, where are you going to look for it? You know, any any movement away to find it somewhere else is going to take us further away from it. Right? If it's already present, whatever we Whatever we imagine that we need to do to find it, you know, to have some special spiritual experience, uh, to, uh, um, you know, cut out a few bad habits, uh, stop drinking coffee, um, you know, whatever our idea is that it's sort of a self-imposed necessity to find out what we already are. Any, any idea, can, can you see it just pulls us farther away from it, right? And it's just something that we do to ourselves. You know, I can't wake up if I have a busy mind. Well, I can't wake up if I'm working 12 hours a day. Really? You know that? I can't wake up, you know, until I resolve this problem. Can't wake up until I retire and have time to do it. All of it's belief, right? All of it's like our imagination of how it should work. You know, we can't imagine um, just receiving a gift without having to earn it. Doesn't, doesn't seem to our human minds, and oh, that can't be right. 
Do we know that for sure? If we are what we are seeking, the gift's already been given. Not actually even a gift, because there was never a point when it wasn't given. You know, it's, it's a pre-existing gift, a birthright, I guess, about that. You know, so our, our job is to um, uh, see through all the arguments that we have with that. All our objections to having received that gift already. all the reasons that we tell ourselves that that can't be true. And the only thing that has the capacity to do that is our thinking mind, right? Things that we've heard, believed, you know, this must be the way it works. So when you said last night when we were talking, I don't know, that's really, it's really an excellent place to start um, because what often obscures things is thinking that we do know things that we don't actually know. Things that we've just assumed, believed, must be the way it works. Everybody else believes it. It's what I've been told. Makes sense. You know, so really might take us years of um, <laughs> spiritual work to come to the point of admitting to ourselves, you know what, I actually don't know. I mean, when, when we really look at it, how many, what can we say with absolute certainty? I mean, really absolute certainty. The list gets real short, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of things are relatively true. What, I mean, so I'd suggest that the closest we can come to something that's absolutely true, I mean, we're still working in the conceptual realm here, still working in words, but the, the closest uh, statement that we can make about ourselves that is as true as a statement can be, still not ultimately true, but it's at, as true as we can state it, is I may not know anything else, but I know I am, right? I exist. In this moment, there's a sense of aliveness. We can, we can say that with confidence, right? You know, that has, that has solidity. <laughs> has more solidity than saying, um, I'm a good person, which is maybe mostly true, but maybe not always true. Or I'm a patient person, or I am an unworthy person. Must not always true either. You know, all of these things are relatively true, but the most 
true statement, still conceptual, but the most true statement that we can make is, I am. I, I, there's, there, I, I know that I exist. I may not know what I is, and I may not really know what this being verb is either, but there's something that I can be certain of that in this moment and every moment that I exist. Yeah? Right? And the, the reason that we can state that with confidence is we can't state the opposite. Right? We can't, I don't exist. Right? You'd have to exist to be able to even make that claim. Right? So just, just that, we can, um, like we did in the meditation, we can sort of set aside all kinds of ways that we identify ourselves, and we come down to that point of, yeah, but I exist, I know that. I'm here. May, may not have a clue what that is, but I, I've reduced sort of the complexity of the whole story to this, you know, two little words, three letters, I am. And that was, um, that was Nisargadatta's whole practice, is just to stay with that sense of I am. And he used to sort of, perhaps with some sense of pride about it, I think, his sense, and he said, it only took me, what now, four years, or, yeah. but just staying with that simple sense, not knowing, not knowing what it was about, but just knowing that it, there was a simple sense of existence there prior to all concepts about what we have about ourselves, where we're going, what this life's about, all of that, but just this sense of, yes, what I know for sure is I am. And, and just allowing that reality to be explored, sink in, investigated. Still, the, the, those two words you know, are still, still a concept, but it's at the frontier of where the thinking mind can go. Right? It can get us there just by process of elimination. You know, I can, I can see just even conceptually that um, from an ultimate perspective, I'm not this, I'm not that, and you know, we're left with just this sense of yes, but there's still existence. There's still a sense of beingness, aliveness, here I am now. That just point. But that, that can be the doorway by just staying with that simple sense of what, what is that? I mean, there can be a conceptual sense of it, but then what, what is that really? And just staying with that sense um, gets, us, gets us in the right arena, right? We've left, at that point, we've left behind, you know, the ideologies, um, you know, the beliefs, the hopes, um, things that we've read, all of that. It just, at that point, um, there's, 
conceptualizations don't help. It's just staying with that simple sense. The mind doesn't like that. Mind loves complexity. You know, what's the 10-step program, you know, for levels of enlightenment? It likes that. But just staying with something as simple as uh, the sense of I am, just that, just utter point of awareness, beingness, where it's where words run out <laughs> and then beyond that um, it's it's we're beyond mind the conceptual mind can't get beyond that point but it can hang out at the frontier make ourselves available Sort of like being an immigrant. You come up to the frontier and you hang out there long enough that you get invited in. <laughs> the inviting in part, um, we can't do by willpower. Right? In- inviting in to what we already are. It- it's, but there's still, um, still feels like grace uh, is needed to take that final step. But our, our job is to get in a position where we're grace-prone. Yeah. We can do that. And we can, um, you know, uh, express our commitment by um, spending, spending some time, spending some um, effort in that point of just simple beingness. That's really the whole, that's really the entire path right there. Yeah. So it's not that the, uh, that sense of I am, um, you could call it the point of witnessing, okay, but not a witness, right, just the point of from which witnessing happens, you could say. Um, but, you know, just to see any, any attempt by the mind to conceptualize it, conceptualize it, what it means, what's beyond it, what it feels like other than just the utter simplicity of being. Okay, like I say, the mind doesn't like that. The mind, it's, it gets bored. <laughs> With it. So that's one of the strategies that the mind has to avoid, avoid it. Mind likes to continue to be in charge. What we're, what we're pointing towards is an area beyond the ability of the conceptualizing mind to manage things. So the mind will try, well, it has a whole assortment of tricks to pull us away from that. You know, um, boredom is one. Sleepiness is another good escape. Uh, Conceptualization about it. Any beliefs that we have about it. It'll use doubt 
right? Like, what's the point of all of this? Right? And there's not, a, there's not a good answer for that, right? What's the point of all this? Well, I don't know, just because it um, seems to be in the direction of something that feels significant. You know, who knows? You know, maybe there's something there, maybe not. But the, it's actually, I mean, they talk about spirituality as sort of, you know, woo-woo, and, but it's actually quite scientific, right? You know, it's like a scientist does an experiment um, and then publishes a paper, and uh, another scientist um, can either believe it, right? Oh, so-and-so wrote a paper, I like the guy, I'll, be, I'll believe it. Or they can, if they want to really be convinced, they do the same experiment and see if they get the same results. If they get the same results, they no longer simply believe what someone else has said. They actually know that it's true. They did, they did the same experiment, got the same results. Right. So in this case, um, you know, there are people who have said that this sense of I am is the doorway, is a doorway, um, you know, by staying with that simple sense, um, there, um, there will be, in all likelihood, a, um, a step beyond that. 